Welcome to the Jungian Anthology Podcast, Analytical Psychology Seminars from the C.G. Jung Institute of Chicago, Episode 16, The Religious Functions of the Psyche, with Lionel Corbett, M.D. This episode is part one of the series, The Religious Functions of the Psyche. In this seminar, Lionel Corbett reviews developments in self-psychology from the point of view of the relationship between the transpersonal self and the personal self, a relationship with important implications for our understanding of spiritual growth. It includes discussions of suffering and the experience of the divine. Corbett explores Jung's view of the innate capacity of the human psyche to have religious experience and to produce religious imagery. It was recorded in 1986. Lionel Corbett, MD, received his medical degree from the University of Manchester, England in 1966, served as a military physician, and became a member of the Royal College of Psychiatrists in 1974. In the USA, he did fundamental research into the biochemistry of the brain, began one of the first programs in the psychology of aging, was a hospital medical director of inpatient psychiatry, trained as a Jungian analyst at the C.G. Jung Institute of Chicago, helped found a training program for Jungian analysts in Santa Fe, while carrying on a private practice and teaching psychiatry at the University of New Mexico. Dr. Corbett has studied various spiritual disciplines, including Christian and Jewish mysticism, Buddhism, Advaita Vedanta, and yoga, and has had a personal meditation practice for 20 years. He now teaches depth psychology at the Pacifica Graduate Institute near Santa Barbara, California, where he founded the Psyche and the Sacred Program, a highly successful series that integrates spirituality with depth psychology. This program has developed a powerful approach to spirituality that is based on personal experience of the sacred, avoiding all forms of doctrine and dogma. He is the author of five books, several training films, and about 40 professional articles. If you are interested in listening to the complete series of lectures, there is a link in the show notes, or you can go to our website at www.youngchicago.org. I'm starting to say that there's a self, a small s self, a personal self. And there's a self that we usually uh, write with a capital S, which corresponds to the self that's uh, spoken of in the Hindu tradition as the Atman, or some inner aspect of the divine. Um, it's, it's the experience of the divine as imminent, as, in other words, as uh, something that we can possibly experience in our own consciousness. That's the meaning of imminent, present somehow. And then we, we um, most of the traditions postulate that there is what is variously known as a Godhead, or the ground of being, which is the transcendent self, which is beyond categories, beyond words, and beyond thought. Okay? So we have a transcendent self, which is unknowable. Uh, it's somehow just the immensity of being that, uh, by which nothing can be said. The Godhead. Okay? Um, but occasionally, this, this transcendent self, which is unknowable, is experienced by the individual imminently, and that would be what we would call God, okay? uh, or the experience of the divine. And then we have a, a, a personal self which does all the experiencing. Okay? So that's, that's the first model. Is that, is that clear? The transcendent self is something that by definition nothing can be said about. This one that's in between those yeah, two. Yeah, the imminent self. Imminent. Imminent. How does it... Would you tell us how that's different yeah. from the transcendent? It's experienceable. It's the, I, the, uh, this is Jung's self. All right. 
Um, the capital, or S capital S self, yeah. Um, the point about that is that it's potentially experienceable in archetypal, what we call archetypal experience. Are there people here who are not familiar with Jung? Oh, that's wonderful. Okay. Yeah, oh, there are some. Sorry. Uh, if I say something that sounds technical or, or, or uh, incomprehensible, please stop me. Okay. Uh, this could be uh, hash. It doesn't have to be roast beef. Yes. I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about your small S self. Yeah, I'm going to spend a lot of time on that. I'm going to spend a lot of time on that. <laughs> so whatever aspect of the divine can be experienced is by definition imminent. It's obvious that the whole of the divine, so to speak, the Godhead, cannot be experienced. That's just axiomatic. Um, so what Jung calls the self with a big S, or anything which is archetypal, is some aspect of the imminent self, or of some aspect of divinity which our uh, psyche can, can understand or experience. So another way of diagramming this, another way of talking about what the problem is, is that if you can imagine, now this is going to be a spatial metaphor, and a, and a, uh, which will only have a limited validity. It's the only way one can talk about these things is through metaphor, uh, and they have to have an as-if quality because it's impossible to be categorical about this material. One can only... And if you say anything other than a, uh, a metaphor, you're obviously not being true to the experience, because this is essentially unknowable. But all the traditions postulate uh, a realm which is sometimes called the Godhead, and sometimes it's called the Pleroma, and sometimes it's called the Bardo, okay? and in Jungian psychology it's called the Psychoid realm. Psychoid. Are you familiar with this term, Psychoid? It's, it's um, not psychic, and it's not material. Uh, it's a place, well, it's not really a place, but it's a place where there's no separation between matter and spirit. It's a hypothetical concept, and it corresponds to the notion of some realm where nothing is divided. That's the realm of the psychoid. In the Tibetan book, of the, the, the Tibetan tradition calls it the bardo. You get the idea. So this is really unknowable and beyond categories. It was your first and largest. That was the, that was the, very, the big one that has no boundaries. Okay. Now, this line represents uh, the beginning of, of history, and time and space as we, as we understand it here. This line. Okay, this is obviously strictly metaphorical. And um, all, all, we can, all we can postulate about this realm of the Godhead is that things are undivided. Things are just uh, some kind of uh, unknowable oneness. Even the word one is a mistake in this realm because obviously the divinity at that level would be beyond number. So that the word one would have no meaning. One would already be, uh, have all kinds of philosophical problems attached to it. So it's... it's, it's has nothing to do with number or time or space. But it's clear that at some point, uh, this experience of the divine comes into history or time and space as we know it. Okay. So, um, um, and it seems that um, as, it, as it comes into history and time and space, it starts to split up into things like uh, matter and spirit, or masculine and feminine, or things that we experience as, as being operate, uh, opposite and separate but which presumably, in, in, in where they originate, uh, are just in some kind of uh, essential uh, non-split condition. Okay, the worst really, though, this is all nonsense, actually. <laughs> <laughs> but, but in other words, we, we experience these things, like uh, we, we know that matter and spirit are somehow uh, different, um, because we categorize experience that way. But presumably, I'm talking about the fact that there's some realm beyond experience, beyond our, our experience. Um, now, uh, at some point, this is a... Uh, continuing the metaphor, at some level there is a human consciousness. Okay. Now, in, in Jungian psychology, we use the term ego uh, to mean human consciousness. That's a somewhat different usage of the term than in uh, other psychological systems, if there are any Freudian people here. Or, or classical psychoanalytic theory uses the term ego to mean a set of mental operations. The capacity to think, uh, the capacity to walk around, the capacity to remember, 
the capacity to um, uh, to calculate and all those kind of things to defend oneself are all operations, okay? Um, it's clearly not a noun, it's not a thing, it's a verb, it's a set of processes. Now, Jung doesn't quite use it that way. Um, and there are problems with using it that way that, that I'll talk about. The problem, very briefly, is that these sets of processes, like thinking and feeling and walking around, get personified. So the way people talk about it is as if there was a little man ins inside your head, you know. And then eventually, the ego, which was originally a set of operations, gets to mean the person. Okay, it sort of stands for the person. So I feel with many uh, people that if we're going to talk about the person, we may as well just talk about the person or the self and not make up any, any fancy words. So a, a lot of us uh, don't like the use of the term ego for that reason. We just talk about the person or the self because the self is much more than the ego. It's much more than a set of operations. Okay. This is getting ahead of myself. In Jungian psychology, when we refer to the ego, we, we're not talking about these sets of operations, like thinking and feeling and, and so on. We're talking about human consciousness. So ego is synonymous with human consciousness. Obviously, I should have prefaced all this by saying that I'm trying to define some of the terms that we get into so that we don't get tied up in a knot. So human consciousness is roughly synonymous with ego. All right? So um, um, just imagine with me in this, in this imagining, which is really a metaphor, and, and, it's, and it's only true in a very metaphorical as-if sense that there are certain lineaments of the divine which, which move through, through time and space and can eventually be experienced in a, in a human consciousness. Okay? Certain uh, aspects or attributes of the divine or interventions or movements, it's very difficult to know exactly what word to use, but that we can experience them. Okay? Now these are... Uh, in, well, when, when I say I experience it, I, of course, is the Latin word is ego, so it's the same thing. It, it gets into my consciousness. Um, and we call these what I like to call lineaments of the divine, we, we call that, uh, we call those archetypal experiences. Okay? So if you happen to be on the road to Damascus and you hear a voice and you go blind, that's an archetypal experience. Okay? Um, but we can all have archetypal experiences in different ways. That, that, that's just a very familiar one. Um, now, um, um, our, our consciousness is limited. Uh, we, c we can think of consciousness as being like a mountain or an iceberg which has a tip and a great deal below the tip and we can only be aware of the tip, okay? And we know that the rest of it that we're not aware of is, uh, is the unconscious, okay? So I could draw my mountain this way, and of course this part, this front tip, would be consciousness, and we know there'd be lots of stuff that we don't know about. Remember, the very important thing about the unconscious is that you're not aware of it, okay? So, um, um, this has given rise to the notion that there is... Hi, Hi. <coughs> you got somewhere to... This has given rise to the notion that there are aspects of, of awareness that we call the unconscious. There's a continuity of consciousness between the unconscious and consciousness, except for, for a barrier that's known as the repression barrier. This is going to mix up psychology, psychoanalysis, and psychoanalytic theory with theology in a, in a way which um, I hope doesn't end up being an abortion. But, but, but the barrier between consciousness and the unconscious is called the repression barrier. Are you familiar with this concept? The idea, basically, is if you get a thought or a feeling which is so awful or so unacceptable that you don't want to be aware of it, that, you, that, the, that the mechanism of repression pushes it out of awareness. Okay. Um, so if, if, this, if this was uh, consciousness up here, and here's the repression barrier, and I meet my brother, and, and my brother was always a competitor of mine for my father's and my mother's affection, and I feel, begin to feel an impulse to kill him, then that is a very unacceptable thought. So it's pushed down out of awareness. Okay. So that's called, that's called repression. And I don't even begin to think about it. And when it's successful, that allows me to be comfortable and say hi and not worry about it. Okay. 
to the extent that it's not successful, I would be a little bit uneasy with him. But because it was unconscious, I wouldn't know why. That's the concept of the unconscious. So, um, so, um, but sometimes things can be um, not not pushed down in this kind of vertical sense, the repression barrier, which is this way in my model, but this way. Uh, okay, they can be what's called split off, so that um, we're aware of them, but the normal feelings that are attached to them uh, don't affect us. Okay, so that if I if I if I realize that um, I'm, I uh, want to kill my brother, but that uh, has no affect, no feelings associated with it, then, then the intensity of the thing is what's called disavowed. Disavowed means split off. Okay? It's not repressed because it's not totally out of awareness, but it's just uh, the, the emotional significance of it is, is ignored by me, it's denied. Okay? So there are two ways, um, either splitting off or repression, which prevent my uh, everyday waking consciousness from being in touch with the rest of my consciousness, which is unconscious. Okay. Now, um, this becomes very important. This mechanism of splitting off becomes very important. It's not a, an irrelevant distortion because um, as w- um, these uh, archetypes, which sort of in a sense move through us, uh, and it's, uh, it's as if um, we're all born with a kind of set of them. Okay? If you can imagine that every individual human being is born with a certain archetypal endowment. If you are, a, um, if the baby is destined to be a great pianist or a great writer or a, or anything really that one has a particular ability for, then that would be analogous to one's archetypal endowment. It would have to do with one's identity as it is given, okay? And it doesn't. It's not a function of early learning, okay? It's just it's just what you are in a very objective sense. It's like the birth chart in astrology, and that's kind of what you are, okay? And then what happens to you gets kind of played out. But that's basically what you are. So everybody has a certain given identity. It's like the Confucian idea. Uh, I've forgotten the word, but uh, there's a, a word meaning the mandate of heaven. Can you, can you remember the word? It's not quite karma. Um, I can't remember the word. But there's a, there's a concept that everybody has a mandate from heaven to be a certain thing or do a certain thing. Anyway. Um, um, see, the, the, um, the word archetype, are people familiar with the etymology of this or would it be useful to go through it? Um, the, the, the type uh, end of it is, uh, <coughs> has the same origin as uh, type as in typewriter or typesetting. It means something which imprints. Okay. And arche, of course, means old. So, so, so that this uh, uh, expresses the idea that there is something imprinted within us, okay? something uh, that, that we didn't put there. Okay. <coughs> this is exactly the opposite of uh, those theories of the mind which say that we're born with the mind as a, as a wax tablet with no impressions on it. This is very much uh, a theory which says that uh, there is innateness in, in the human being. There are certain qualities that are innate. And many people like that. Many, many people hate that. Many people think it's un-American because anybody ought to be able to do anything. And if you have innate, innate qualities, then that spoils it somehow because that means that some people are going to be better at some things than others. But I think that's the way it is. I'm sorry. <laughs> um, anyway, in Jungian psychology, that's the way it is. And, and, the, the, and the archetypes, because we're all, we all are, have certain archetypes that affect us much more than others. Okay, so, so as the as the this um, unknowable divine, so to speak, splits up into its archetypal components, into its bits of experienceable experiences that we can experience, um, um, it guides the evolution of our consciousness. We grow in a certain way. We are different, and we grow in certain ways. And we're destined to have different kinds of archetypal experience. Um, and. Um, Jung says that there is a, there's a, an, an area of our 
psyche of our, of our mind, which is personal unconscious. And that's the, that's the part of our awareness that's been conditioned by childhood developmental factors. This is where your, what your parents did to you comes in. Okay, that's the personal unconscious. It's that, it's that area of you which has just been conditioned. And to a greater or lesser extent, you're aware of the conditioning. And to the extent that you're not aware of how you've been conditioned, it's, that's the unconscious. That would just be another way of saying it. But he pockets, there's a layer which is deeper than that that's called the collective unconscious, which is, so to speak, where the archetypes live. This, as I mentioned at the beginning, is, is nonsense language. But, but, but there's a realm, um, there's a realm where, um, you know, all the peaks, if these are individuals, each separate individual, if you can imagine the mountain range going down deeply enough, there would be a level at which uh, every one of them would, would go into the same substratum. And that's the collective unconscious. And that's where God lives, or the archetypes <coughs> do that thing. Does that make sense? So that's the... Um, this, of course, is, is anathema to um, uh, academic psychology. The reason it's anathema to academic psychology is because it's very big. It's even bigger than departments of academic psychology. <laughs> <laughs> it, is, it is so big and so powerful when it hits you that it threatens to uh, unseat you and, and uh, maybe even fragment you, depending on how strong you are or you know, how much you can cope with. So we can't have anything like that. So, 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 <laughs> so it's disavowed, it's split off. Okay. Or in other words, um, they, uh, the reason there's so much resistance to the notion of an archetypal unconscious or of the archetypes in general is not... I mean, you'll hear stuff, people talk about that it's, you know, it's baloney, it's, uh, it's unprovable, it's not scientific. Or, no, don't worry about all that. The problem is it's too big. And um, uh, it doesn't fit into the way they like to conceive about that thing. So uh, they disavow the importance of it. And that stops them being anxious and upset, you know, because... Well, I'll talk about that a bit later. Um, but what I want to spend this whole uh, time on is um, um, here's the uh, transcendent self. Here's, so to speak, the beginning of the imminent self. Uh, and I don't know anything about the transcendent self, so I won't say anything about that, because that's presumably beyond words. What, what I know about the imminent self is um, what I can experience of it through archetypal experiences, which are what we call numinous experiences. Are you familiar with the concept of numinous? Is anybody who's not? Okay. So, <laughs> numinous comes from the Latin numen, which means a god or, or uh, the divine. And it actually, actually, the root, the verb is nuary, which which means in Latin to nod. Okay. And the origin of it was that 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 the, when the god uh, called, he would nod, and that would be a beckoning. And the beckoning meant that he was supposed to follow. So, so a numinous experience means an experience which is an experience of the divine in which one feels drawn or attracted. Okay, um, the, the, we all use Otto's definition of the, uh, the, um, um, tremendum at the experience, which is tremendum et fascinans, tremendous and fascinating, but also uh, frightening at the same time. Okay, so when one has a... So I gave the example of, uh, what's it, of uh, Paul, Saul on the road to Damascus, and that would be a big one. Another one would be um, um, the Moses in... The collectively known ones would be the, uh, the burning bush experience. Okay? Uh, anything like that, that, you know... Um, it's obviously an appearance of the divine, would be what we would call a numinous experience or an archetypal experience. Now, uh, one of our major, major, major points uh, is that um, we can all have these individually and we don't have to think that they are restricted to certain great figures in history because we all, this model applies to all of us and all of us have this stuff moving through us. Okay. Yeah, yeah. This is not perfectly clear. Ralph, just something for a little two-minute mm -hmm. meditation. Uh, I happen to be writing an article right now on the movie It's a Wonderful Life. Do you know the movie? No, sorry. <laughs> okay. All right. So I want to talk about uh, the issue is which is how does this? Um, no, I'm assuming that when the baby is born, 
that the imminent self, the big S self, is in quotes in the baby. Okay, the child is a child of God, and that that whatever that energy is, it's in there somewhere. You see, in is not quite right, but I don't know what word to use, but it's there somewhere. Okay, so you know when you look at the kid and you get that funny feeling and and you see it in its eyes, that's what you're seeing. Okay. <coughs> But it's hard to describe, but the, but the question is, how does that energy, which is so big, okay, it's, um, how does that translate, it, translate itself into a person growing up and becoming uh, a separate self, which, of course, for the baby is not, has not yet happened. The baby, when it's born, it takes a few years to develop a sense of being a self. It takes maybe three years. To get born psychologically, it takes about three years, something like that, before the, the child knows it's a self. Maybe less, I don't know exactly, but you're not born as a, as a separate self psychologically. So I want to know, how does this big S self get into this little S self? That's my question. How does it do that? And how does, it, how does this big S self, which is there in the baby, um, um, how does it express itself in, in the realm of the personal? So that when we grow up as, as individuals, just ordinary people, how are we ex- expressing our archetypal endowment? Or in other words, how are we are expressing those aspects of the divine that particularly want to move through us? How do we do that? Okay. Now, um, since we have a finite human body, um, and since I, I take it that whatever it is is in or round or whatever, I don't know what, which word to use for this, but I'll use in, I don't really mean in, the baby. But that is spirit, okay? So this, of course, leads to this difficult spirit body problem, which I, I can't particularly solve. Um, but my question really becomes... Um, how does the spirit get into the body? Okay. And uh, since I think that um, this archetypal endowment of the individual is going to greatly influence the psychological development of that child, um, I call this process by which the pr- spirit which is present at birth um, and then gets into the physical realm via the human body, I call that incarnation with a small eye. Okay. I call it with a small eye in case anybody gets upset and thinks I'm talking about incarnation with a big eye. Okay, it happened to me in a couple of places and I got yelled at something. <laughs> so it's incarnation with a small eye. Um, now, um, this is no less than the process of psychological de- development, which in uh, Jungian psychology is called individuation. It's the same thing. Individuation just means becoming a, a unique individual or a whole person, or really just becoming what you were destined to become. That's really all it means, which is saying a great deal, of course. But the, the individuation is synonymous with incarnation in this sense, because one's individuation, one's psychological development, is predicated on these essentially spiritual uh, factors, which are, they seem to be having a better time next time, <laughs> which were present at birth. So is that a clear concept? Okay. So I want to talk about the relationship between the bigger self and the littler self and the process by which uh, the one sort of gets into the other or influences the other. Yes? One of the things that I'm having a hard time imagining from yeah. my own experience is that I feel oftentimes a great estrangement yeah. from these biggest selves or God. And yeah. I couldn't say that this estrangement is just the result of a re- repression barrier. No, it's not. No, I didn't mean to imply that. I'm sorry. I didn't mean to imply that. Well, this is an extremely important question. And um, I was going to talk about it rather later on. Okay. Do you mind if we leave it? Uh, uh, it basically has to do with um, the fact that uh, I'm, I'm going to assume that the divine is always seeking us out and that there are certain things that we do in our own psyche which prevents us experiencing it. So when we feel estranged, 
the problem is that, some, that there's something that we're doing which is preventing us experiencing it. Because I don't, I, and I, I can't prove this to you, but I don't think that God is somehow hiding from us. So I think the problem psychologically is what are we doing to interfere with the experience? Um, and I, 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 it's a, could, could we leave it? Because it would really take us off track if okay. we might. But I promise that I will. Okay. Okay. Well, it's a critical, it's sort of really in a way the whole point. You know, because what can we do to experience it more is the important question. Um, but one of the things I can say straight away is that sometimes the experience is, is so big that we're frightened to let go into it. Okay. But I'll talk more about it. Because in order to, um, see, um, in order to really answer your question, I have to talk about some aspects of small s self-psychology. Because um, um, th- there is a concept of in, in psychology uh, which will help to explain why it's difficult for the smaller self to receive the energies of the bigger self. And it's the concept of narcissism. Excuse me, now, narcissism used to have a bad name, and, and Freud thought that it meant uh, self-love rather than object love. Object, uh, in psychoanalytic theory, they talk about people as objects, which is why we're all here tonight and not in the analytic institute. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but objects, uh, an object means the object of the drive which in traditional theory, they've given this up now, but in traditional theory, there were only two things that made you do something, and that was sex and aggression. And that was the, they were the motivating forces behind all human behavior, everything. didn't matter what you were doing. You mean they're not? What? They're not? <laughs> no, they're not. They're Sorry. Not. <laughs> no, 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 no. But I, that's a very important question. Um, uh, you still thought they were, obviously. <laughs> it's a disappointment. Uh, so... Um, um, in, the old, in, in that line of thinking, primary narcissism had to do with self-love uh, as distinct from the capacity to invest in another person, um, which is called object love. And the more it was pathological, the more you would be uh, focus, uh, focusing on yourself and the less you could focus on other people. Now, um, now there's a modern school of, psycho, of psychoanalysis called self-psychology. This is smaller self-psychology. And um, there, there are many... Uh, many, many of the analysts, uh, the classical analysts, have given up. Remember Freud's tripartite model: ego, id, and superego. <coughs> Everyone familiar with that? I don't need to go into. A lot of them have given up and said, "Well, that's just a self, just a person." So they're, so they're moving ahead. <laughs> so, um, so what was I? Uh, oh yeah. So, so they say, well, uh, that narcissism uh, had got a bad rap, and in fact, uh, what, there is such a thing as healthy narcissism, and it ends up. Uh, with the development of what we call self-esteem. Okay, it's not necessarily unhealthy to, to care about yourself and feel you're worthwhile and valuable. It isn't as pathological it was it, as it was in the early theory thought to be. So in modern psychoanalytic theory, especially in the psychology of Kohut, K-O-H-U-T, uh, which is the, the, brand, the brand of psychoanalysis which I'm going to use to illustrate personal self-psychology. Okay. And this is not Jungian. This is, this is, uh, a, a, a ma- this is mainstream... Um, modern psychoanalytic theory. Um, Kohut talks about the fact that there is healthy narcissism, that it, is a, it has its own what's called line of development. In other words, that the, the baby has to, de- has to develop it ab initio, from the beginning, as a particular developmental line, which is separate from that line of development which helps you uh, love another person, or be sexual, or be aggressive. That, that, that narcissism has its own line, that, that there's a pathway, a developmental line, to the establishment of healthy self-esteem. And at the same time, um, uh, what that does is, if, it, if, it, if healthy narcissism develops, is it enables you to develop a cohesive self, okay, small s self. A cohesive self is a self that won't fall apart easily. 
won't fragment easily or won't disintegrate. Different words are used. But um, when you fall apart, and there are all different ways of falling apart, uh, you can get very anxious, you can get panicky, you can get depressed, you can, you can become hysterical, you can split off and go into a fugue state. Um, whatever, you, whatever you like to do, you can go crazy. Okay? Uh, you can um, uh, go numb, you can um, go paralyzed. You, uh, any of these are all different ways of falling apart. All of us have uh, that um, as a potential within us, but, but it would take more or less stress to make us fall apart. And the degree of stress is a function of how cohesive the self is put together in the first place. Okay. Um, and there's a, a correlation between self-esteem and, and how cohesively you're put together. Because if you feel fairly good about yourself, then you won't fall apart easily. And if you don't feel very good about yourself, then it only takes a slight upset for you to fall apart. So if, if I said to you, well, you're, you're a terrible person, and it's obvious you know nothing about this, and you're really not fit to come back because you don't, you don't know a damn thing about this. If you'd grown up with, with, with difficulty in the narcissistic line of development and your self-esteem self was rather vulnerable, <coughs> then you might be terribly wounded and hurt by this because it would just be another, a new edition of what your mother or father did to you, saying that you were no good and you were incompetent. And that old anxiety that you experienced when they did it would, would come up again and you would fall apart and you would be crushed and uh, whatever, be embarrassed or be depressed and so on. On the other hand, if you, if you have a healthy sense of self-esteem and you've had parents who fostered your... Uh, sense that you were worthwhile and together and a nice person and so on. And I said that to you. You'd say, "What nonsense! There's nothing wrong with me. There must be, you must be a poor judge of character, and you wouldn't <laughs> fall apart." Okay. And then, then uh, presumably there would be a bell-shaped curve between those two extremes. So that's the idea of the cohesiveness of the self in relation to self-esteem. Yes. Sir? Uh, also, though, you can have a low sense of self-esteem and be real well dependent. Yeah. Exactly. Thank you. This is exactly right. And those are called. Um, there are things called narcissistic defenses. And a narcissistic, which is, gets me to, I'll get round to your question. I'm sorry I don't know your name, but I'll get round to you. But it has to do with the presence of narcissistic defenses, you see. The, the, a narcissistic defense, this is about four sessions ahead, is anything, that, is a, anything which helps us to, to hold ourselves together. Um, for example, if, if the person I said that to attacked me and said, well, you're obviously an idiot and got angry, then that would be a narcissistic defense which would serve the purpose of holding himself together or herself together so that they wouldn't fall apart, you see. And there are all different kinds of narcissistic defenses. Anyway, this is very long-winded, but you've got to have narcissistic defenses, and, but they can be either healthy, mature, or they can be immature and unhealthy. But you have to have something, otherwise you'd be apart all the time. So a metaphor might be that if, uh, in the building of the personality, you build it like a castle walls, good solid bricks, that's the healthy. If you don't do it well, if they're just uh, defenses for an unhealthy, then you might you make them out of paper mache and hope nobody attacks them if they do... Uh, well, not only are they made of paper, papier mache, but you also have to camp right. At, you have to camp by the walls and defend it. You can't let anybody near. Okay. okay. You know, it's the you have to be the Michelin man because you you, you 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 need a lot of protection against the vulnerable core. Okay. So you have to live at the boundaries and protect it fiercely. So narcissistically vulnerable people are always defending themselves in what seems to other people an unusually vigorous and ferocious manner when there's no need. But it's because they have a vulnerable core. Okay. And that has to be respected because it, you, uh, want, uh, it's there for a purpose. Well, so, uh, what's the relevance of all that? The relevance of all that is if, that um, 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 suppose that if you have a, if you have a, I'm going to draw this little circle as a model for the little less self. If it's if it's nicely firmly fit together, you know, all the pieces that go into the person. You know, which make us all fit together. If it's all nicely fit together, fit together, 
then um, when it has an experience of the divine, which has a much higher grade energy, I mean, God is much bigger. So you've got this very big, high-grade energy that's, you know, impossibly large. And this little thing is going to experience it. It's got to hold together so as not to fragment. In other words, you can only experience the divine and not go crazy if you're fairly well put together. Okay? If, 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 you're, if you're not very well put together, okay? So it's obvious that someone like uh, Paul, when he had that experience on the road to Damascus, I mean, the fact that he could recover from that and go on to do what he did, or <coughs> Moses or any of these people... You can't have that kind of experience and stay together unless you fairly well, unless you have a cohesive self. If if you um, have an experience like that and you're not well put together, you fall apart, you fragment. Okay. Now, um, let's suppose that you're you're the chairman of an academic department of psychology, and you're put together in this way, but there are all kinds of holes or lacunae. Okay. Then um, when you start hearing about Jung, you see. And, uh, uh, you know, it all starts, the glue starts to come undone a little bit, then, um, you know, you've got to defend against that because you sense that it's going to be too big, okay? And that would be a narcissistic defense. And in that case, it would be a narcissistic defense against numinous experience. So a person can have a, a powerful numinous dream um, and then come into the office. And I've, we've all had this experience many times, and they say, well, I had this dream, and then they relate this incredible dream. Um, and they say, well, just one of those things, just another little dream, you know. And it's, uh, they have to defend against the bigness of it, okay. Um, so what we have to do is we have to study a little bit about the, the psychology of the self, the smaller self, because the, the, uh, there are some things about the way it develops that become very important in, in later life. Now, um, it's important to understand that the cohort self, the smaller self that I'm going to talk about, and young self, are concepts at two different levels of abstraction. They do not mean the same thing. You cannot read them as synonymous. Okay? And one of the difficulties that, that, that some of the psychoanalysts have when they read Jung, when they try and read Jung, is that they don't understand what the word self means, and they think it's just a lang linguistic problem, obviously. They think it means what they think self means. It doesn't mean that. Uh, and there's some overlap between them in the sense that there's a divine component to the personal self, but they're not the same things at all. And um, it's a, in a way, I'm but there's no other word for it, and the word is hallowed by usage, so we're just going to have to live with it. Um, all right, so, so this bigger self has to get into this little self, and this process uh, is a process of incarnation with a small eye. It's synonymous with the process of psychological development or maturation or individuation, okay? Um... So, since this represents spirit, the spiritual potential of the individual, in this sense, the spiritual development of the person uh, is synonymous with his psychological development within this paradigm. And the better put together he is or she is, I'll say he, I don't mean to keep using the say he or she, the better put together he is, the, the more he's capable of having a profound experience of the divine without falling apart. Okay, that's a, a hypothesis that I would like to try and prove as we go along. Now, uh, how, do we, uh, how does the bigger self get into the little self? One of the ways it gets in uh, is through what is known in Jungian psychology as, as a complex. Is everyone familiar with the, with the concept of a complex? No. Um, okay. Um, Im imagine that you're a small child and you, and you have a father who yells and shouts at you all the time and constantly tells you that you've made a mistake and done badly and this is no good and that's no good. And every day this is drummed into you. Yeah. So that um, uh, 
you develop what is known as a father complex. And um, uh, any, any idea or person or thought or feeling or image or association which is connected to father or anything to do with fathering, the whole world of fathers, okay, will, will cause you to have similar feelings depending on how similar the experience is to the way you felt when you were a kid being yelled at by your father. Okay? So um, you, you're, um, you, you're in college and you get a, a, a note saying, please come and see the dean, and you have a father complex. Okay? And you think on the way, oh my God, what did I do wrong? What did I, he's going to yell at me. What did I do? What did I do? And you start to feel intense affect, intense emotion. Okay? In this case, it would be fear, because you're quite sure you're going to be yelled at for getting bad grades or, or, or not having clean shoes if you're in England or something like that. Um, so by the time you get there, you're in a high state of anxiety, and the, the guy might just say to you, would you mind playing uh, uh, for the college basketball team this Saturday? Okay? And, then you, and then you wonder why you're in such a state. Okay? The point being that these complexes really distort our perception and stop us seeing things very clearly because of the intensity of the affect. But how is that connected with the big S? I'm going to get to it. Okay, I'm going to get to it. Um, so, uh, um, the point is that the, the emotional experiences of the complex are embodied. This is a very important idea that you must get. That affect, which, by which I mean basically emotions and feelings, are embodied. Now, what I mean by, I'm going to come to it. What I mean by embodied is that we have an autonomic nervous system, you know, the involuntary nervous system, which makes our heart rate speed up, causes sweating, and the bowels to move, and regulates the blood pressure, and all those um, unconscious functions that we, we can't voluntarily control <coughs> are all under nervous control, and that's called the autonomic, it could be called automatic or autonomous nervous system. Okay? So when you have an experience of fear, your heart rate speeds up whether you want it to or not, and you sweat whether you want it to or not, and you have to em empty your bladder whether you want to. All these are autonomic, they're involuntary. So affect, so they're in the body, okay? And at the same time, uh, the hormones of the adrenal glands making adrenaline and cortisol and all these different hormones start to discharge and you, and you get this surge of adrenaline and you feel hyped up and you're wired, and, okay? Um, and um, so you have a, a hormonal response on the glands and an autonomic nervous system response to your heart and sweating, okay? So that is embodiment. That's the body reacting to the affect, okay? So affect embodies. So if you have an experience of the spirit and you get goose pimples, okay, and your heart pounds, okay, and if, it, if you don't get goose pimples and your heart pounds, it's not an experience of the spirit. <laughs> but, when you, but when you get that frightened feeling, because you, you, um, numinous experiences are usually awesome, okay, A-W-E-R, and, 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 and uh, they're often extremely frightening. Sometimes they can be ecstatic, and, they, and I guess they should be ecstatic a lot of times, but very often they're just terrifying. So that terror, and it, and it takes kind of ten years to figure out what the hell it was, Unless you, unless you disavow it and say, oh, well, it was just something I ate, okay? Like Scrooge. Well, we'll talk about poor Scrooge. But, but if, you, if, you, if you really realize what's going on and you feel terrified, then you're having an embodied experience of the divine, okay? So that the spirit, okay, is causing an embodied reaction, okay? So that is a sense, and this is, you can hear the metaphor, that is a sense in which the spirit incarnates. Because of the experience of the spirit, something comes into the body, okay? So the affects are the key to embodiment. Now, how does the complex do that? Well, the theory in Jungian psychology is that if, if you could... Um, these wonderful uh, Jungian circle metaphors, but if you can imagine the complex, at the center is thought to be in some image of some archetype. Okay. In this case, that I gave an example would be the father archetype, the archetype of the father. And then clustered around that core of the complex are experiences of the personal father, uh, of fathering, of people, school teachers, policemen, 
authority figures, and one could keep making associations to that, you see. Or images of the father, you know, God as, a, as an old man with white hair in the sky uh, doing this, okay? That would be the archetypal sky father. There's sort of Baroque music, you know how it's all in there. Well, that's, um, uh, okay, so the archetype is one of these lineaments of the divine, some aspect of the divine that we are now experiencing, because behind, the theory is that behind the personal father is the transpersonal father, or mother, the transpersonal mother, or whatever it is. So that the reason, one reason that one's father and mother is so amazing is that, is that behind them is some experience of the transpersonal mother or the archetypal mother or father, okay? So, so uh, it's thought that as we have, um, that, we, that we are born, here we are, here's the baby born at this moment of history, and, and it's born with the, with the potential for having a certain archetypal experience of the father, which can be either positive or negative, or anywhere in between, but let's take the extremes. So if it's positive and you have a warm, loving father and so on, then you have a positive... It's thought that every archetype has a positive and negative aspect to it. Okay. Pole. Is this clear? You can, in other words, you can either experience the divine in its, in its awesome, terrible aspect or in its positive, benevolent, giving aspect. And there's a personal correspondence to that. Um, what was the point I was making? So, so if you get a negative... But, but the, um, the potential in the baby is filled in by some human father or mother. Okay? So the archetypal potential, the potential for having one of these experiences, is filled in by the personal mother or father. Okay? But uh, in a sense, the theory is that it sort of sticks to the latent possibility for having that archetypal experience within the child psyche. Does that make sense? So that when you are experiencing this father complex, you're at the same time, if it's a negative one, you're experiencing the negative side of the father archetype as well as the negative personal father. You are essentially experiencing the dark side of the self, big S self. See, there isn't, there isn't just one big S self. I mean, Jung talks about it in much too... Oh, I hate to say this in here. I hope I don't get struck by one. But <laughs> Jung, is, Jung is much too monotheistic. I guess I should cover the table. Um, but he's, he, he talks about the self as if it was one big glob. You know, it's, it's, it's not. It, it, the self really consists of its manifestations. Okay? You, you never experience the whole self. It would be impossible. You always experience aspects of the self. Okay, so uh, you shouldn't think of it in a monotheistic sense. So, so um, I mean, I can experience white light, and that would certainly be an experience of the self, but it wouldn't be all of it, it wouldn't be the self, it would be some aspect of the self. Okay? I can experience it as a still, small voice. We'll talk about this. There are many ways to experience the self, but it's not the self, it's some aspect of it. So, so the archetype, like in this case, the positive father, negative father, is, is an experience of the dark side of the self, the negative side of the self. Okay? And it's axiomatic in Jungian psychology that one can experience either. Um, how did I get on to it? Oh, I know. So when you have, a, um, so when you have an, an experience of the complex, you are, by implication, according to this theory, having an embodied experience of some aspect of the archetype. So it's through the body, through the affects, that the incarnation occurs. Now, these complexes will determine the course of our psychological development. Because to the extent you have a positive or negative mother or father complex or whatever it is, you're going to radically have your life affected. Because the, when we say the mother or father complex, we're talking about something very complicated. It has all kinds of subtle nuances of expression and feeling and, and what they said and how I felt. <coughs> it's really a complicated thing. And it will determine how our life develops. So, so the archetypes or the bigger self, which are just kind of... When I talk about the self, the bigger self, young self, I'm talking about sort of all the archetypes. You see, you also <coughs> talked about the bigger self as the central archetype. It's, it's not really right. It's really... Um, <coughs> that one experiences these different archetypes. So if you have a mother complex, it's always determining some aspect of your life. Right, and various theologians who've criticized Jung, they've said, well, 
um, you know, it doesn't take the form of a cross or a Star of David. It's not, it's not, the, it's not the official formula, the, the self stuff. Sometimes it's just a wise old man or a, or a beam of light or a voice. Or, and and they, they're saying, no, the divine only has to correspond to certain formulas. You know. if you, it's okay if you see a woman with a, with a, with a, a blue uh, dress and um, standing on the moon, then, you know, you, you're it's safe. But if you have some experience that's not one of the official categories, you know, they say it can't be uh, an experience of the divine. So that's an extreme example. But, but I'm, I'm going to ask you to widen your categories for what you define a self-experience as, as we go along. Okay, and then, and then see. Sorry, should we take a break? Or let's take a break. Meet in five minutes. I'm sorry to cut you off, but I think people are getting out. You started to say something about the highest level of incarnation. Oh, yeah, the highest level of incarnation is when, when we discover the meaning of the experience. It's when it, when it comes into meaning. Thank you. Let me just go on a bit with my overview. I've almost finished the introduction. <laughs> um, uh, w- one way of, of understanding Jung's notion of the self is that it's the imago dei, or the image of God, within the individual. And so, um, uh, any, any classical imago dei can be understood uh, as an experience of the self or as an image of the self. Okay? And obviously the different traditions would have different... Uh, different images of the self. You might have Christ or the Buddha or Krishna or Shiva or whichever tradition you happen to, to come from. Uh, the, the idea is that one is experiencing in that uh, great figure, the avatar, um, something which uh, ex- you know, metaphorically exists within the individual. It, it's, within is not a good word, but uh, that somehow we experience the self, uh, the bigger self, uh, projected onto this figure or in relation to this figure or something like that. Um, and the different cultures and different traditions will have different ways of doing this. Um, now, uh, that was to answer your question about the avatars, but we'll go into it in some more detail. Um, but there's another concept that has to be introduced here, which is the concept of the soul, uh, as it's understood psychologically, and, and the spirit in relation to soul. And if I can do this, that's why I'm smiling. <laughs> um, but spirit here means something which is archetypal, which means not personal, okay? Other with a capital O, beyond, coming from the beyond, okay? Um, not coming from me, okay? Uh, sort of coming from above, you know, in the <coughs> traditional sense, that God is above. Um, and soul, uh, the way I understand soul is that it's something which is within, again, here these special things metaphorically, within the individual, and gives it that in us which, uh, psychologically speaking, I'm not speaking as a theologian, I'm not speaking about that bit of us which survives death or something like that, but psychologically, it represents our capacity to experience spirit. It's something intensely personal, okay, and intensely embodied. It's really in the body. And if it wasn't in the body, we wouldn't have bodies, okay? There must be some reason. Maybe we, before we finish this, we'll get into why we have bodies. But the, but but the soul clearly is in the body; it's embodied. Okay. So the the metaphor that I want you to think about is that uh, I'm going to use these words. These words are all meaningless. But the spirit comes into the soul. Okay, from beyond or wherever it comes from, it comes into the soul, and the soul is uh, the receiving organ for spirit. Okay. So that when the soul speaks which, you know, etymologically is what psychology means, psyche logos, the, the soul speaking, or the language of the soul. It's, it's, what it's doing is it's talking about 
It's experience of the spirit. So if I say, wow, I was on my way to Damascus and this happened, then uh, the thing that came in was spirit, but the, the, the thing which w came into and which then went wow and talked about it afterwards was soul. Is that difference clear? So, so what, did you hear all that? Yes, yes. Did you have a question? No. How is soul different from consciousness? Um, we, we are only conscious of some aspects of our soul's experience. Our soul may be having all kinds of experiences which, uh, of which only some appears in consciousness. These, these are words which, which are not often strictly comparable. They, they are abstractions which, which may um, really be at different levels and may not necessarily meet. You know. So um, we can certainly, obviously, uh, we are aware of certain of the soul's experiences, but there, but there are presumably other aspects of the soul's experience that we are not aware of that would be the unconscious. The, the, the original meaning of psyche was simply soul. So, so some people understand what we call psychological experience to be soul experience and just leave it at that. That would be the archetypalist position and there's a lot to be said for that. So it's a particular um, perspective on things which, which has to do with that intense embodied experience of the archetype. Um, okay. Um, now, uh, presumably there must be some similarity between spirit and soul. There must be some capacity for one to experience the other or one to uh, enter the other um, it, now it looks like when, when the soul uh, has an experience of the spirit what it does is it casts that experience into an image Okay, this is important, so you're asking about dreams so in a dream we have a series of images okay. and the dream is soul talk because the soul tends to talk in those kind of images and you know, remember Jung said that that um, that the psyche depicts uses image to depict its own process. Okay, the psyche doesn't say uh, the soul doesn't say I am feeling depressed. The psyche gives you a dream where you're at the bottom of a hole. Okay, it, it depicts its its process in that way, imaginally in images, very often not in words. Okay. So so uh, there's a sense in which the image is the fundamental unit of the psyche. And it's very important not to hear image in a sense in, 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 in some narrow way as somehow a mental picture which represents something because it's much more than that. When you use the word spirit, you are using it in the sense of the imminent self or an aspect of the imminent self? Yes, yes. Some aspect of it. It's more or less, spirit is synonymous with archetype because it's, because it's, non, it's, non, it's transpersonal okay, or non-personal. So the archetype, you can, these are not totally synonymous, but roughly speaking, spirit equals archetype. And what happens when, you, when that gets into the soul is that the, the experience is cast into some kind of image. So that's why you come and you say, I had a big dream, and then you proceed to, to talk about it in, in, in terms of images. So uh, somehow the soul has the capacity to take the experience of spirit and cast it into an image, which can then be talked about. Um, now, uh, what I'm going to suggest to you is that one of the sources of religious experience is those images which result from the transpersonal spirit entering into the personal soul and, and the image which results is the source either the source or the medium of religious experience okay? so if you have a vision which is an experience of the soul if you, if you see something which is clearly something very unusual and archetypal um, we, we could say that was an image which was experienced out there so to speak, rather than in here, using this in-out metaphor. Okay? The dream is, so to speak, an internal image. But people can have visions out there. 
Um, and that would be uh, a soul experience uh, out there. So the image can be anywhere. Um, but somehow the image is, a, is the source or the medium of religious experience. And I think that religions develop around soul, these different kinds of soul experiences. And some of them become collectivized and lots of people share in them. Okay? But um, what's important is that we all, we all can have these images. Now, one understanding of religio the etymology of uh, the word which gives rise to religion is to read again okay. and from the Latin which means basically pay careful attention to, reread. So, um, uh, so Jung's definition of religion was paying careful attention to these intrapsychic images. Okay. They're not meaningless. So when we pay careful attention to these intrapsychic images uh, we are paying attention to the images of the soul in their interaction with spirit and that is a religious experience now it's not uh, it, it, it may or may not have a very powerful um, affective component I mean you can have a dream that seems banal just ordinary every day and nothing oh I had this dream and you know I met my friend and we went for a walk and it's this kind of a nothing dream okay but if you, if you really thought that that was the experience of the soul in relation to spirit you might not take it so lightly you would really search for the you would search and say well what is the meaning here what, what is because um, it's an attempt at embodiment. You see, if you, if you really look at the dream images and you are moved by them, which sometimes happens, when you are moved by them, then the incarnation to that degree is a bit more complete. Because that's what the spirit wants to do. It wants to say, hey, Charlie, wake up. So that's, that's why it, it has this affective uh, component to it. So, so that's uh, another partial answer to your question, that just paying very careful attention to one's imaginal life, either fantasies, dream images or artistic productions or creative productions out there which are imaginal, which are not purely personal but which come from some deeper place is a religious experience. Now the official traditions will tell you that that's not necessarily religious because they want it to be restricted to their formulas. Okay? So I could get into trouble here with uh, very traditional religionists who say well you can only have religious experience if it's in the official way. You can't have it otherwise. <laughs> Um, but that's because we have such a monotheistic uh, mindset, you see. If you have a polytheistic mindset, which is where there are many, and I don't mean that there are many gods in the literal sense, I'm talking here metaphorically that there are many manifestations of the divine. That, that's what I mean by polytheistic. That we can have all different kinds of archetypal experiences of the divine. Then you don't restrict yourself to the official formulas. You can have a lot more religious experiences. Mm -hmm. yes, my reduction is the dream in the basement of being yeah. in a dark place yeah. telling me I'm depressed. Yeah can be either religious or just a purely personal, depending on how I take it. Well, a lot depends on how you deal with it. I think that's very true. And um, a lot of dreams don't seem particularly awesome or numinous. They just seem kind of so what. And um, I, I, I suppose uh, that that is a weak point of my theory, that they don't cause much affective arousal. That they don't seem to be attempts at it. There are some dreams that nobody would argue with are numinous. But the more banal kind of dreams... I, I, I could say, well, I think we just don't appreciate them, or we haven't got the message, or something, but I can't really argue about that. Cause if well, it could be that all dreams are our people to pay more attention to Yes, that's the point. We may not understand them. Uh, I was going to uh, end up by saying um, that I thought that the highest level of incarnation was when you understand the meaning of one of these experiences as a, as a, as a, a meaningful experience. But that really incarnates it very fully. And when you wrote off being missed by a car, you yeah. feared. Yeah. 
between that also? Well, could, yes, I didn't you're quite right. I didn't mean to write it off because <laughs> when I did, I realized I was wrong. So, because uh, if you're narrowly missed by a car, that could have all kinds of religious uh, meaning. So I, I didn't mean that. It was a bad example. I was trying to get an example of affect that somehow wasn't mediated by the spirit. Maybe there isn't one. Maybe I haven't thought this too. <laughs> maybe, maybe every affecting experience is I don't know. I, have to think I think I might be wrong about this. Yes, go ahead. <laughs> uh, are you saying too that in the, in the dream that has the affective experience, um, you're getting closer to understanding the dream if you can understand the, the emotion or the yeah. feeling that went along with well, it? Well, first you so, feel it. Yeah, yeah but it, that, so therefore if you're having a dream that isn't, isn't isn't expressing any feelings, you're probably going to have to work harder to try to figure yeah, out. Yeah, but dreams always express feelings, unless you split them off. Oh. Oh, you can disavow them, you see, because they're yeah. too powerful. The, the, you know, the idea is that the self, big S, is the maker of dreams. Mm -hmm. You could say the dreams come from God, it would be just the same thing. And, um, and, and unless you think the divine is up there making dreams for no reason, presumably, the, uh, <laughs> if you get no feeling from the dream, you're, you're disavowing the meaning. That's what disavow means. It means you, you get the message with no feeling. It doesn't feel important. Well, I think that that's a narcissistic defense. That's to stop us getting blown away by it. Okay. Yes? Would the experience of, or the dream of intense evil or an intensely painful image of rape, of murder, of obvious pain, degradation, yeah. would these be also yeah. the life self? Yeah. So what does that tell us? Well, you see, the self has a dark aspect to it as we experience it. See, um, I, this is getting ahead, but I guess it doesn't matter. The, the, um, what we call ego is a certain capacity that we have to categorize experience into good and bad, right and wrong. We just, we just, the whole of our experience, we say this is hard, this is soft, this is good, this is bad, this is evil, this is good. We're always categorizing all the time. Now, you'll have one set of categories, and I'll have another set of categories, but it's as if in the mind somewhere, this is all meaningless, you know, but in, in the metaphor of the mind, there's a whole set of manila folders, okay, and it says good, and it's got a lot of stuff in, and bad, and it's got a lot of stuff in, okay. Now, uh, what, what you do in therapy is you rearrange the contents of those folders, don't you? You, you, you put things in different files, you, you know, reframe them, or whatever word you use. So, and they, they call that changing the ego, or strengthening the ego, or expanding it, or, but it's basically rearranging the categories, now, um, so that if you have something that looks terrible, and you think, oh God, that's awful, and then you realize that that, that, that in fact had some tremendously important and positive uh, aspect that you didn't realize at the time, you change your category. Okay? The problem is that the ego is incapable of really experiencing the wider meaning of, of all these events. So it's forced to have certain narrow categories. So we experience some things as bad or painful, and we call that the dark side, we call that our personal shadow, which is our own darkness that, that we may not know about. And that behind that, so to speak, lies the archetypal shadow, or the dark side of the self. Okay, so that would be those aspects of the divine that we experience as negative. I, I was going to spend some time on this later on, because it's very difficult. Um, but, that, but presumably that is a function of this business of categorizing and dividing consciousness. You know, where... Um, um, I was going to do this later, but if you could have an experience of oneness, of cosmic consciousness, of uh, Satori or Nirvana, or one of these states where everything is one, then, you know, you read all the different traditions describe these experiences, and you don't get these categories. All of a sudden, everything is right. Everything is one. There's no observer, no observer. There just is isness, sort of whatever that means. You know, it gets to be meaningless after a while, because the words don't apply anymore, because the words are categories, you see. So that there obviously is a state of consciousness somewhere 
that where these, this good-bad business doesn't apply. You know, and that is beyond the ego. So that's one understanding of these states being beyond the ego. It's beyond categories of thought, okay, where everyday thinking doesn't apply. You get beyond all that. Um, so it, the answer is it depends on the level of consciousness that you're operating at, whether you experience something as good or bad. And presumably there's a perspective, the perspective of the divine, where things just are, and there's nothing to say about them. Is all that is, is good? Well, you know, Juliana of Norwich, all is, all is war will be well, and all will be well, and all manner of things will be well. I mean, that's a perspective of a highly developed consciousness. And uh, I suppose it's achievable. Um, but I want to talk about how you get to that point, because most of us can't get to that point very easily because of the pain of our complexes, of our, our affects are so intense that it seizes us, and it feels bad. And that stops us saying, ah, yes, everything is just the way it should be. And the great mystics say, don't worry, everything just is just the way it is, it's just the way it should be, everything's fine, everything just is, forget the good, bad. But it's very hard when you're hurting like hell, because somebody just died. To get, that's the problem with the affects. They constantly pull you into, into categories, you see, into, into defining things as good and bad. So I, um, I want to get to the, how you do that psychologically. My point will be, in the end, that the more you can work on yourself psychologically and deal with your own material, your own complexes, your own dynamics the more you'll be able to achieve that spiritual level of consciousness. And I'm going to end up by saying, uh, well, this is like starting at the end, but <laughs> <laughs> this is a movie that begins in the middle for the benefit of people who came in in the middle. Um, 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 the, the point is that um, the more you can surrender your narcissistic defenses, uh, the, the less you will be able to, the less you will need to defend against what happens and you'll be able to see everything the way Juliana of Norwich saw everything. But what stops us seeing everything as okay, and what, what stops us experiencing the world without anger and fear and denial and all the rest of it is, is our need to protect ourselves against the feeling that we're going to, this is so terrible, I'm going to fall apart. Isn't there something that we can protect ourselves from? Well, that's arguable. I mean, from an everyday ego perspective, of course, the answer is yes. But from the perspective of the divine, things just are. You see, and if you start saying this is good and bad, you're into the ego, which is the human perspective. I, I, I'm not uh, trying to knock that, you know, because we've all got that, and, and you know, it's the thing that lets you cross the road and get here and write the check out. I mean, you have to do all that, right? So I don't want to um, uh, really get far ahead of myself. The, 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 um, the purely Western position, the Jungian position, is this: the, the, the purely Western emphasis on the ego, on categories of thought and science and technology and, and conscious development of uh, experience and so on, um, is too one-sided that the Eastern position, where you want to get rid of the smallest self or get rid of the ego uh, and be immersed in, in the oneness with the consciousness of the, of the uh, fullness of the divine, is also too one-sided because we need the ego. And that what we should do is relativize the ego so that it feels in relation to the biggest self. Okay. Uh, many people will say that's the Zen position too. Um, that uh, there's a Zen concept. You're going to have to hear all this again, I guess, of, of, of no mind, you know, which means that the ego is in relation to the greater self. Um, so these are obviously not new ideas. They're not Jungian ideas. They, these are just old ideas that have been uh, said in Jungian language. Do you have a question? Yeah, I have a question. Do you or does anyone here know of a uh, an artwork, a work of literature, a novel that treats of this? Shall we say small as self? Personal self, of course. Personal, personal self, self yeah. uh, probably damaged one. Uh, 
struggling with this matter of coming to know and feel comfortable with the big S itself. I'd like to get my hands on such a work. Is there a piece of work of literature? I, I can't make it Okay, I haven't read that. Who? Steppenwolf. Steppenwolf? Yes, Yeah. But isn't it the whole story of man's relationship to the divine and I mean, how many ways it... Yeah, the Bible. <laughs> well, I'm sure you feel a bit You're getting lots of suggestions. I'm looking for something that deals with the old man say that's true, but it's, it's, it's uh, Moby Dick, certainly. But I'm looking for something that, looks, that really looks at the character in struggle psychologically, not spiritually. The way, the way I'm trying to make a point. One of the points that I'm obviously unsuccessfully making is that they're the same thing. That, that spiritual development can be understood as synonymous with psychological development because the more you can get yourself to little less self together, the more you can experience the divine. So, which is another way of saying spiritual development. So, I'm trying to make a, a case for them being synonymous. Let me, let me just run a one by coming in. I happen to be using a, a work right now in the classroom, uh, The Magus by John Fowles. And I like it very much, but John Fowles is very intellectual, very at this level. I'd like to find something that he does there, but at this level. And I don't know. Well, you want to get something written by a feeling type and not a thinking type. Well, I know that. Well, give me the name. The guys don't write. No, they don't. No, they do. They must write. Oh, they do. They do. Guaranteed. Are there any feeling types here who'd like to have an author that really. Why don't you write one? <laughs> you, know, uh, you know the autobiography of St. Teresa of Avila where she describes all these experiences and her reaction to them? There's a lot of feeling in it. Oh, St. Francis would be a good example of a feeling type, sure. With a father complex. But, I mean, Cousin Jack's writings are all feeling. They're all. Let's move on because I'm. You were talking about that there about experiences that are banal. Yeah. And it sounded like you were making a distinction that a banal experience won't be a numinous experience. And my sense is that we may not want them to be. Yeah, yeah. We may not see them as that. Right. But that but any experience has, has that the potential. potentiality. To I agree. Be. I agree. And we don't have to talk about the great ones, no. the mystical ones. No, no, no. I, I'm, thank you. I was trying to emphasize the fact that when we have a simple dream or a simple experience, that if we don't defend against the importance of it or the significance of it to protect ourselves, that it can have an incredible meaning. But the reason we don't see the divine everywhere, and I'm postulating that the divine is constantly seeking us, you see, and that we don't experience it all the time. So I'm asking, why don't we experience it? So I'm saying, well, we must defend against it. We must, in order to hold ourselves together and not have to expand our categories too much, because I've got my idea, I know what's right, please don't interfere too much, right? Um, whereas if I have an experience which makes me have to reshuffle all my, my file folders and then I'm, it's going to be all discombobulating. So I don't want to do that. So I'm not going to allow the meaning. I'm going to disavow the meaning of it. So I think we defend against the experiences of the divine constantly. I'm sure it's quite frustrating for the divine. <laughs> 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 he reminded me of the worst of late. Yeah. 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 But isn't there such thing as the co the collective shadow? Yeah. And it is in that collective shadow side, yeah. there's some amount of prudence that should be done when when confronted by that. Yeah. At some certain level, that could be 
describe a certain defense of Here's the end again. Um, <laughs> there's a quotation from Eckhart which says that, uh, I won't get it right because I, I didn't bring it because I wasn't going to get to it tonight, but, but um, he, he alone has, has uh, true spiritual poverty. Can you remember it all? He alone who has, tr- has true spiritual poverty, who wills nothing, no- no- knows nothing. Wills nothing, wants nothing, and knows Thank nothing. Thank you. Wills nothing, wants nothing, and knows, and knows nothing. nothing. Thank you. Knows I, I, so that's a quotation from Meister Eckhart. You don't want anything, you don't know anything, and you don't will anything. Okay. Now that is a Vedic... I mean, he was a 11th or 12th century German, but it's just right out of the Vedas, basically. I mean, based all of that, really, on one simple spiritual experience, you know? I'm not an expert in Eckhart, except I just love to read him. But, well, I don't know if he got it from the Vedas, because I'm not a historian, but, I mean, it's it's all the same wherever you look. The the point is that... um, uh, um, I'm trying to use that to answer your question. You see, if you you know... He he wants you to give up knowing. Well, if if you say that a thing is bad, you you already know... Okay. Or if something happens and you get upset, then you already want it not to have happened or something different to have happened. It's, this is a very high level of consciousness to achieve. And how can you let go of knowing, wanting, and willing, for God's sake? You'd never get out of bed, would you? I mean, you'd be lying there in bliss all the time. But you see, it's talking about, he's talking about that whatever happens is just right. And it's knowing, knowing, wanting, and willing, and what I, uh, psychologically the analysts would call omnipotent fantasies, where we, we have fantasies that we think we know something, and that we're powerful, mm-hmm. and sometimes they're unconscious. We all have omnipotent... Do you ever have the experience where you can't say no? <laughs> Somebody had that experience. I've had that experience once or twice. Well, if, if you... Well, when you have the experience that you can't say no, there's an unconscious omnipotent fantasy behind that. I've got to do it. And I'm capable of doing it. Yeah, I mean, that we have all kinds of unconscious fantasies that we don't know about. That's the tautology. If it's unconscious, we don't know about it. So, so um, uh, he wants us to give up knowing because we don't know what's right in the much larger sense. You know, from the, from the aspect of the divine, we don't know what's right. And the only will that's worth willing is the will of the divine. I mean, obviously. I mean, what the hell is what, what I want? Uh, gonna, I mean, that's not, you know, there's a bigger picture. So if I could really get with it, I wouldn't want anything or know anything or desire anything. I mean, this is all very Buddhist. You know, it's all traditional stuff. But, but um, the point is, how do you, what is it which stops us being there all the time? Well, it's these, it's these narcissistic defenses. Uh, is there not a danger in the process of individuation yeah. if, as you move from the inchoate numinous experience yeah. to the infant, yeah. and you individualize the self, yeah. the false self, if before you have that process completed, that sense of self, if you allow the numinous in too fragment, oh yeah, it's dangerous. I, thank you. That's right. And so, so, yeah. so you need to then yeah. look at it developmentally. Yeah. That's what I'm going to do. That's uh, that's probably next week or the week after. We're there are a lot of fragmented people on this world that right. are ready to be subject. Right. I want to get. That's very very important, and I want to spend a lot of time on that on yeah. the development of the personal self. Yeah, and if you don't do that, the, the development of the personal self, you, know, you sense, can't have. Yeah. Then you're meddling in very dangerous and safe right. ground. Right. Right. Well, it's sacred anyway, but it's very dangerous. The danger is that you won't be able to tolerate it. Okay, but that's very important, and I want to spend a lot of time on that. Thank you. The, the quote you gave, I just yeah. need to clarify something. He alone has spiritual poverty. I think you said, he alone has spiritual poverty. He wants nothing, wills nothing, knows nothing. The word poverty there is crucial because normally we think that's not good. And I take it from that quote that that is a positive thing, spiritual poverty. But whatever is, is. You see, when you say good, you're into the ego and you're into categorizing it. His whole point is stop it. No, I'm getting at. Um, let's go back a moment. Poverty, I think, in this sense, doesn't mean fiscal poverty. It means, it means. I understand. Uh, but poor in spirit, you are yeah. spiritually nothing. 
you have no contact with spirit. You are lost. That's well, not about well, you know what? Spiritual power means acknowledging. That's what I. But that's what you can't right. from that quotation mean that. If you're one with the divine, you're not lost. You. I mean. I understand it, but that quote suggests, even though I think. Well, he's got to way. use words. I mean, that we're all the damn words. You see, <laughs> are all red herrings because they, a word is a category or a, refers to a concept or something. You know, I mean, it's. It's by definition, it's, it's not going to say, it can't talk about this experience, which is beyond words. It's an ineffable experience. It, it, the words don't do it. So I'm, I, I can't get this right for you in words. I can try, but <coughs> I can't get it right. I know, I know what you mean, but it's just that one wants to say, one is rich in spirit. Oh, okay. That's okay. the point I'm trying to get at. Yeah. From a rational point of view, yeah. and if you push it far enough, I suppose you can turn it back around yeah. poor in spirit. I just want to be yeah. sure that we are... Yeah, I don't know. This is the kind of argument that gets me tied in knots. I don't know. I don't know the answer to it. Yeah. Any other question? Well, we were talking about the the poverty meaning. She said empty, yeah. and then I said open, and I think yeah. that seems a simpler way yeah. for me to understand. Okay. <coughs> okay. Open. Yeah. Would you? Would you? Would open be open? So um, let's see. All right. Let me um go on a little bit. Now, it's obvious that if you cut somebody's head off, they can't think. So, 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 so the thinking uh, and feeling um, and so on and, and everything that's in our consciousness somehow has to do with the brain. Um, and there are all different ways of, of looking at the brain. And uh, there's a, the, the range, obviously, is the school of thought that says, well, the kidney makes urine and the brain makes thinking. And, and that, um, you know, this is the epiphenomenal or central state materialist view that um, what we call consciousness is the the printout of the brain's computer. That would be the way of saying it. And that there's no mind-brain problem because, uh, because there's a computer up there and uh, its printout is what we call consciousness. And, that's, and um, there are lots of people who uh, feel very happy with that theory. And um, I'll talk maybe more about that. And then there are other people who would say, well, look, um, and, and that's why if you cut somebody's head off, consciousness ceases because the brain is then dead. And there's no such, th- there's no ego, because, and the ego is, what we call ego, thinking, feeling, and all that, is all dependent on that clockwork working properly. So if you brain damage somebody, the clockwork doesn't work properly, and the ego is somehow impaired, and so on. So, um, then you can argue, well, um, you can say, well, all there is is mind, with a capital M, okay, and what the brain is, is a television set which receives, which re- receives the signal. The mind, with a capital M, is the signal, and the brain is, the, is the, res- uh, the radio set or the TV set that picks up the signal and does something with it. Okay? That would be a, be a more idealist view of uh, the relationship between mind and brain. But there's, there's whichever model you use or whatever you use in between those two, there, um, there is some relationship to uh, ego and brain. Because it's, it's definitely true. But of course, if you, know, if, you, if you break the TV set, it doesn't receive the signal as well. <laughs> so you, you can't get out of the... Uh, you've still got some relationship between ego and brain, whichever model you use. Okay? But it's clear that brain is body. Brain is part of body. Okay. So I want to suggest to you, remember I'm talking about embodiment now, incarnation of spirit, that, that there has to be somebody there to get the idea about, to have the experience. Okay. And that that person has a brain, and that that brain somehow is somehow connected to ego. So that I'm going to suggest that our consciousness, or what we call ego, or human consciousness, is the experience of consciousness in the body, or in matter. Because the body is matter. Okay. Is that clear? The body is made of stuff. It's made of matter. The brain is body, so the brain is matter. And there's some relationship between matter and consciousness, which I'm not qualified to go into. But 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 
there is apparently consciousness in matter in the body, okay, which we localize in the brain, but that might be too narrow. But certainly, there's some. What our consciousness is consciousness in the body, okay, because we are in, in the body. So I don't know how it's brought about, but I do know that, that our consciousness is in the body. It's embodied consciousness, okay. So the ego is embodied consciousness. So what then, to go one step further with this model, is that the self gets into the body, it, it does its complex thing, it, get, it gets the affects to, that's the beginning of incarnation, through the feelings, and then somebody says, wow, what happened? Okay, and becomes conscious of that. Okay, so now, matter has become conscious of spirit. Okay, is that so far so good, or is that vague? So the highest level, so then you can say, oh, I know what that means. That means that, and then come up with some meaning. That's a, that's a high level of awareness. That's probably the maximum uh, degree of incarnation that we can achieve when we, when we understand the meaning of the experience. Um, now, remember I talked about the repression barrier and the, the, some, or, or the, or the uh, disavowal, the split off? This disavowal, by the way, this repression is called a um, horizontal split, and uh, disavowal is called a vertical split. Okay. Because in the model, one is pushed down and one is sort of pushed to the side, as if it's as if it's there, but it's not attached to the reality. Okay. Question. You say uh, to understand it, yeah, or to experience doesn't necessarily mean to understand it. No, of course not. You can have a powerful experience that you can't understand. Yeah. So you, you're aware that it may be the divine, but you don't. Well, you, you might just be very moved, and you may say, well, that was uh, an experience of the divine, or an archetypal experience, or a nuministic, but I don't know what it means. Okay. But then if you then spend 10 years figuring out what it which is usually about how long it seems to take, <laughs> then um, when you dawn on what that means, I think that's the very highest level of incarnation. Because the meaning of it seems to me to be, this is just my personal, I don't know if this is correct, but I think that when you get the meaning of it, that you get the highest level of incarnation of spirit in matter, i.e. in human consciousness, through the ego. Does that make sense? So I'm saying it's, it's not, uh, for example, with the burning bush thing. It's not yeah. Moses just experiencing the burning bush, but there has to be the meaning of it. That comes he has to know level. what that means. Well, he doesn't have to know that. But if he knew what it meant, which he did eventually, then... Um, but, you know, I, you see, if that was a dream, if somebody came to me and said, I had this dream that I was in the desert and yeah. this bush was burning and I got close to it and a voice said to me, yeah. I would say, well, you know, gee, that's wonderful, wonderful. But what comes to your mind when you think about bush? I mean, I'd have to figure out why it was a bush and not a house or a... Or a the tree or, yeah, okay. or something anything could be burning see I, I, we think that the specificity is very important now if I got into oh well when I was a kid um, my mother got fed up with me and, and tossed me into a bush I mean this is I'm just making this up now and um, ever since then whenever I've seen a bush it's reminded me of my mother and off we go now I want to get much more about the meaning of that you see yeah. so I mean that's what we do in analysis we try to figure out what the specificity of the image is because that's where the meaning lies it's not just any old bush, it's the one that my mother did to me, and, and um, so now I'm having a mother experience of the Divine Mother, maybe, or I'm, I'm out of Moses now. I'm just I'm trying to say that you get meaning by amplifying the image specifically, if you can. And sometimes you can't, like, sometimes the person will have a dream image, and you say, well, what do you think of, what do you associate to uh, lollipops? And they say, oh, nothing. And then you can fall back on, on what we call an archetypal amplification, which means if you could ask the whole human race to say, what comes to your mind when you think of lollipops, and you get an answer. That would be a, 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 a non-personal amplification, but that may be the way out. But um, I think that it's often much more meaningful <coughs> than personal association. <coughs> yeah. The kind of meaning you seem to be talking about is a logical construction. No. Well, I, I'm going to get into a tangle with you. <laughs> um, 
um, I think that things are meaningful. I'm going to be circular. I think that things are meaningful when they really affect me powerfully emotionally. But I think I understand that it may not be logical in the, in the sense of syllogistic logic. It may be logical in a feeling sense or in some other... You know, it depends what you mean by logical. I, I don't, I, I'm not a semantic philosopher and I can get easily tied up here, but it doesn't have to be logical in the strictly thinking sense. Well, it has to be, I have to have an embodied sense of meaning. If I have a, I know what that means. Knowing. Knowing. Gnosis. It's a, it's a Gnostic experience. Small g. Okay. Um, anyway, you have to have an ego to do that. You have to have consciousness to do that. And apparently you have to have a brain to do that. That means you have to have a body. That means you have to have matter. That means that meaning, of, that the spirit's meaning gets into matter. You see? Mm-hmm. So you have an affect and you have meaning. And I think that that's what incarnation of spirit means in this, in this uh, paradigm. Right, that's, let's see. Um, now, all the time... Oh, you, uh, should we stop? Do you want to stop? Or, uh, it's nine o'clock? We can't really go on. Can I take five more minutes? Or yeah, I don't yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> okay. As the, as the as the contents of the unconscious come up into awareness, into consciousness, um, what what they do is they split up into their different lineaments, and you have different kinds of experiences. And what that does is it enables our consciousness. If I talk fast, I'll do it quick. It enables our consciousness to differentiate the primal self that was there in the baby into its constituent parts as we experience different aspects of it uh, presumably it was all there somewhere but we, we differentiate it okay. so one of the functions of all this seems to be the differentiation of the self in our consciousness it, it, it manifests itself in different ways and we categorize it and that seems to give us an experience of different manifestations and there's a possibility that that, that, that is how the self differentiates itself okay. does that make sense? That leads to the Kabbalistic... It doesn't lead to the Kabbalists arrive at this intuitively, but they said that the purpose of creation is for us to mirror God, that God needed someone to be aware that he existed. I know a lot of people think Jung said that, but actually people think... <laughs> um, but the, now, this is too complicated, so I'll just say it quickly, and then we'll go over it. Slowly. But, but the way... And the Hindus say the same thing. That the way... I think the way we, we mirror the self is through our differentiation of archetypal experience. Okay? This podcast is distributed under a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives license. Share it all you like as long as you maintain the attribution to the speaker, but please do not change it or sell it. If you like this episode, tell your friends about us or leave us a review on iTunes. For more information about classes, training programs, videos, audio, this podcast, or to find a Jungian analyst near you, visit our website, www.jungchicago.org.